You are about to listen to Defending Black Girlhood Podcast, and I'm your host, Lalita G. I'm a black mother. Look, I don't care what Mookie Mae Mae and Lakeisha oh, Mama does. I'm not Mookie Mae Mae and Lakeisha's uh, Mama. Tripping. A preacher. Give me the key of D. And Mary had a little baby, and his name was Jesus. A life coach. Look, girl, if Chump don't want no help, Chump don't get no help. Oh, and a singer. And I, and I, and I, no, I ain't a singer. Most of all, I'm an advocate for black girls everywhere they are. And I'm telling you right now, I am unapologetic as hell about my fierce advocacy for black girls to be safe in their homes, schools, and communities. Join us for courageous conversations about topics that most impact our girls and be inspired to do your part in defending black girls in your part of the world. Good morning, Beth. Good morning, Monica. Your little friend is waiting for you in your office. Erica? Yep. She's been waiting around for you since first period. There's my girl. How are you doing today, Erica? Good morning, Mrs. Whiteman. I'm fine. What can I do for you today, sweetheart? What's on your mind? Nothing, really. Is there something you wanted to tell me? I know that this sweet girl is carrying around a heavy secret. We all have been very concerned about her. I've tried, but I just don't know how to reach her. (sighs) How do I get her to really open up to me? Trust me. I can't help her if she doesn't tell me what's really going on with her. Come on, Erica. You can do this. Just say, I'm so scared, Mrs. Whiteman. Can you please help me? Every day, I I keep thinking that this is the day that I'll be able to tell her my secret. But when I get to her office, the words just won't come out. My mother has warned me over and over again what will happen to me if I told those white people at school that she's been beating me. Why can't Mrs. Whiteman tell that I'm trying to tell her something? I wish I could push the words out of her mouth so she could just tell me the truth and I can help her. I wish I could push the words out of my mouth and just tell her the truth and she can help me. Bye, Mrs. Whiteman. I'll come back tomorrow. story I have to just say is probably one of the most tragic stories I've ever heard of a black girl story it's just it's tragic and you know I want to really take the time to unpack it to really understand how it ended as it did because I think this is important because if we can understand the steps that led to her death in 2007 I believe that it will help us to prevent another Erica Hill, 
to be able to understand it. And many times, and I get it, many times when something bad happens or we're a part of something bad that happens, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to explore it. We just kind of want to stuff it away. But if we're really committed to defending black girls, we have to look at the times when we didn't and understand it so that we can really move forward with a better sense of conviction, a better sense of purpose, a better sense of strategy in defending black girls. And so to help us to unpack how Erica's story ended this way, we're going to be having a number of conversations with key individuals to try to answer the question, who killed Erica Hill? And it may seem like it's a really straightforward answer, but I think we need to take our time to answer that question. Who killed Erica Hill? So Monica Caldwell was the school social worker when Erica was a student at Wright Middle School. And she is one of the first people that responded when I started reaching out to folks to have conversations about Erica to better understand her story. And so listen in to this conversation. And I really encourage you as the listeners to even think about getting a notebook that you keep throughout this entire series and write down the questions that you have, write down the responses that you have, because we need your help in answering the question, who killed Erica Hill? We need you to listen to these conversations, to be a part of them with us. And so help us as we go along this journey and critically listen to each conversation to come up with your own questions because we're going to want to get those from you. So listen in to this first conversation with the social worker and notate key points that really stand out to you. Here we are with Monica Caldwell. Monica, thank you so much for coming to the show today. You were the school social worker at Wright. That's right. From which years? 1998 to 2009. Are you originally from Madison? No, Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Oh, okay. It's beautiful Don't hold up it there. against me. I won't. <laughs> I won't, but it is beautiful up there. It is. That's especially true. during the summer. Oh, my goodness. So we're continuing our conversations about Erica Hill mm-hmm. and looking into her life and her experiences. And we're talking to various people whose pathway she crossed and getting just some more detail about her. And our hope is to give some dignity and some honor to her story, as well as finding ways that we can make sure today around the Erica's in our lives that we are doing all that we can. So when we talked on the telephone, Monica, you told me that Erica was around your office almost every day. Mm-hmm. Well, let's back up. First of all, let me just start off with saying, if you were to describe Erica with one word, what word would you use? Boy, that's a good question. Gentle. Okay. She had a gentle spirit about her and she wanted to be close. Mm-hmm. She didn't have a lot to say when she was, but you know how somebody's right up under you? Yeah. Like real close. Yeah. And it had a a feeling like she needed something from me. It wasn't demanding energy. You know, it mm-hmm. wasn't like, I want something now. You know, like you got to give me something. It was just like, just hold me close. Just mm-hmm. stay by me. Let me know the world is okay. Mm-hmm. And so she was often outside my office in that way, kind mm-hmm. of not asking for anything, little gentle spirit, but around a lot, like sort of 
hovering around. Where is she today? Yeah. Can she make time for me? And so my colleagues would tease me and say, your friend Erica's here. Okay. And so she was regularly in my office area. Okay. You said she'd be around a lot and that she would want to try to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Like what are some of the things, ways that she tried to be helpful? I would invite her in regularly, right? Mm -hmm. So she was in my office a lot. And normally when kids come to talk to me, they're coming to tell me what's up, you know, what's going on in school or what's going on at home. And so most kids engage in conversation with me around something they're wondering about or worried about or something they're proud of. Erica wasn't like that. She came around my office and would hover and I'd say, come on in. And she'd sit down and then she'd look at me. Mm. She'd just look at me. <laughs> and so I'd ask her, you know, how's it going or whatever. And she was, she didn't have a lot of words. Mm -hmm. for me. But it didn't have that energy of being like bound up and scared. It was just like waiting and close. She wanted to be close. Yeah. So I experimented in my office with her because mm -hmm. as a social worker, I'm trying to make the connection. Like clearly I was one of her chosen people, but I didn't necessarily know why. Right. Because sometimes you get that click and you're like, we're talking and we're connecting. Yeah. I experimented when she would come in. I'd ask her some questions. She didn't have a lot of words, mm -hmm. you know, and didn't have a lot to say, kind of quiet. And so then I bring out something and we draw or we listen to music. I remember one time I was just experimenting with the connection because right. she was clearly seeking it. But it wasn't about words. It was really about just spending time together. And sometimes then I wasn't really clear what the avenue was. Mm -hmm. I just knew that I was one of her people. So. Yeah. As she would come and be around a lot, and that's a little unusual for a school social worker to have somebody in every day. There's a lot of kids to see. And mm -hmm. so you wrestle with, okay, honey, it's great to connect. I'm going right. to do this quick connect, but you got to go. You right. got to go off to class. You yeah. got to do your thing. I remember she would often come in the mornings and then I would say, hey, you want to help me out? And that's where she would light up. Okay. Because it wasn't about talking. There wasn't attention on her per se, mm -hmm. but she was being useful. Okay. Um, you know, and I'd have little things that she could do with me or whatever. And so that was where the rhythm was. It wasn't in the face-to-face -face connection. It was more in side-by-side, -side, mm -hmm. being helpful, being useful, you know, having something to do with me is okay. kind of how I felt about it. So the other thing that I did as kind of an experiment was because she was around so much, I said, let me give you Wednesdays. Like Wednesdays will be Erica time, just you and me. I'll close the door. I won't let anybody interrupt us. And we'll have this time to be together because I didn't know if that would change how much she was around. Because here's the dynamic. When a child is coming to you and needs something from you and you're a busy professional, I didn't want to be one of those people who said, got to go. Don't right. have time for you. You know, this kind of stuff. And it had a little bit of that energy because she was always around mm -hmm. and was one of our people in the office there. So I said, let me make sure every Wednesday that I carve out this time for you. And we did that. And that, too, was quiet. Okay. It was quiet. Like, I've been doing social work a long time. So you figure you can find something that's going to draw a kid out. She was very protected. But it had a really gentle, positive energy to it. I don't know how else to describe it. Mm -hmm. um, as I remember physically, just to describe her, she always wore long pants and long sleeve shirts, it was something that I noticed regardless of the weather. I didn't ask her about it specifically. I would ask her more general questions about how are things going, how brothers and sisters, mom, pops, whatever. She was very thin, but not unusually show for an 11-year-old in sixth grade. That's when I met her. She had glasses that I always wanted to swap out. 
They made her eyes look a little, a little hard to make focus. You know, like the lenses were thicker and the frames were, and they were always halfway down her nose. So okay. I wanted to tighten them up for her and just kind of give her a little, I don't know. I wanted her to be able to see things more mm -hmm. uh, from her perspective, you know, because there was a very quiet voice in there and I was trying to draw it out. But I remember the glasses being a little bit of a symbol. Yeah. And again, she didn't ask for anything. Like if I'd say, you know, look at those glasses. We should, we, you know, maybe I'll call your mom, get you a new pair so that you can see better and they're not falling off your nose. Nothing. You know, there wouldn't be any like, yeah, please do that. Yeah. But I remember that being a thing that we talked about a little bit here and there. So... This continued, this relationship where she was around. Mm -hmm. um, we had our Wednesday time where I was trying different things, creativity, you know, music, art. I just didn't know what the pathway was going to be. And then she was useful to me. She wanted to be useful. She mm -hmm. wanted to uh, help me a lot. And so I was happy to provide options for her to do that. In terms of school, she never complained about school. She did her part. I don't remember her having a lot of friends. Okay. It was pretty superficial connections. I was wondering if she might get bullied a little bit because okay. she was quieter, because of the whole appearance thing. I don't remember the teachers bringing me that issue in terms of wanting to protect her. Certainly she didn't, but she wasn't a girl who named her needs anyway. Well, it's interesting because I've been reaching out to find someone who knew Erica, who was yeah. a friend of Erica. Yeah. And I know some girls from the school around that time. And I can't seem to find anyone who knew Erica. Mm -hmm. Like everybody knew her older sisters, but not her. And so, you know, I think that is kind of telling of her just kind of keeping into herself. But it sounds like her being around you, you knew there was something but I know for school social workers, especially, there's always a fire to put out. And if you don't see the blaze, you don't really know what's going on in a particular situation. Especially when you ask. Lots of invitations, lots of curiosity. And, you know, in hindsight now, looking at her isolation, it was by design. It was by design. I mean, when you think about her world and how small it was outside of school, I'm not a little bit surprised that she would find one adult and stick with them. Right. You know, one person who's safe, who isn't going to take anything from me or make me feel bad or whatever. And so now I understand a little bit more. I, you know, my thought was as a social worker at the time that her social skills were a little, maybe a little awkward or a little sure. immature, but nothing I was worried about. I mean, right. I, young people in middle school, they grow. Right. And so I was hopeful about that, that it would come together for her. So at the time she was there as a sixth grader at 11, which of her sisters or brothers were at the school at the same time? So I don't have a good recollection of that. Somebody okay. else might. But I think there was an, at least, I don't know if there was a seventh and eighth grade sister, but at least an eighth grade sister. There was one older girl who was there. But the way that we delivered services was by grade level. Okay. So I only knew oh, okay. Erica. I didn't have okay. a lot of light touches. Um, her mom did come in occasionally to school probably more frequently than other parents did Okay, to stop by friendly at the front office, making conversation. So what are your impressions of a mom? I didn't talk to her as much as other people did mm -hmm. other than I would usually go up and say, I see Erica a lot and I really like her and just a smile and it was fine. So there wasn't any red flags there either. Mm -hmm. You know, just that she was around a lot, which demonstrated some caring and concern. Mm -hmm. I had other people report to me though that the children changed when they were around her. 
that isn't something I saw firsthand. So I don't know how much you want me to talk about that. Well, but what did people tell you they saw? So most of this information comes from our school secretary who was up in front. So when Marie would come in, just checking in or dropping kids off or whatever, she was very friendly with adults and was a great conversationalist and all that. But when the children were with her, she said they were like tin soldiers, quiet, stiff, compliant, well-mannered to the point where it was concerning. Wow. So that did get presented to me as, you know, what do you think is happening? And Mm -hmm. so my observations, Erica wasn't sharing anything with me Mm -hmm. and she was generally pleasant when I was around. So I was like, I don't know. And I just was curious about it. I didn't make any labels or any assumptions. I just was like, I don't know what's up. Right. Of course, hindsight is always 2020. One of the things I want to focus in on, because I heard this from another person that I spoke with, is going back to you saying that they always wore long sleeves and turtlenecks, no matter what the weather. What are some signs that we need to be looking at as adults when we're around kids that might be telling us that something deeper is going on? Because like Erica, it's very difficult for children who are being abused to voice it. They're terrorized Mm -hmm. out of fear. And many times have been told, if you tell, if you think this is bad, if you tell, this is what's going to happen. So what are some signs that we as caring adults need to be looking for? Mm -hmm. So when a child can't give voice to their needs and they are a bit frozen mm-hmm. and a little bit stuck, you know, you can kind of see that their body is tight and they don't want to share that there's some secrecy that's happening. That's a good sign that something's up. If the normal developmental path is compromised in any way, they just aren't making friends, they aren't doing their schoolwork. If there's major changes in what's happening in who you know that child has changed, there's some changes that are happening that that you notice. Give us some examples of what some of those changes might be. Changes in patterns in coming to school, doing absenteeism, doing less homework, withdrawal, hoods up, heads down, not sharing. So there's a real closing in that happens for some kids. For some kids, it's the opposite. There's more Mm -hmm. anger, more distress in the classroom or more physical fights or things like that. But if you notice that, that would be... A change. If there are changes in hygiene, like sort of how they present themselves, if they're looking less together, if there's evidence that they're not sleeping well, you know, coming to school just tired and having trouble focusing, those are all signs that the kids are in some distress, mm-hmm. you know, outside of the house. Mm-hmm. Gym class is often a hard place for kids. They don't want to, I don't know how she navigated that. That would be a good question. That is a good question. Because I, and I think that we gave kids some choice about dressing. I think that's changed now. So there's not the old gym suits or right. in the turtlenecks and the long pants. If she's running around playing dodgeball, like any 11 year old girl would, mm-hmm. you know, she was having to protect her you know, how she was seen by other people. So that's hypervigilance, you know, always wondering, how do you see me? Is the world okay? Is it safe? Are you going to hurt me? Which is why when I reflect on the story, to be chosen by her was really an honor. Even though I wasn't clear why I was one of her people, it happened. Now, do I ask myself, I wish you had told me? Of course, I asked myself that question. Mm -hmm. Like why, with all the connection we had, but she did tell one of the adults at Wright, and that's part of the story. Right. So how did you and Erica make that initial connection? She found me. Okay. She just showed up. You're the social worker. Mm -hmm. Right across the hall from her sixth grade teachers. Okay. And so, and I don't know if one of the teachers said this is one of our good people to talk to, or if I was in the hallway and smiled at her real nice. I don't know what the connection was, but it was definitely initiated not by a teacher referral, 
Okay. Not by me finding her out. It was her saying, I need somebody. Wow. Which is really, I mean, yeah. So I, what I want to do is give the blessing for maybe elementary school teachers before me who were her safe people. I don't know that for sure. Mm -hmm. But in general, when young people gravitate instead of toward their friends, they find an adult is because they've had some experience where an adult has been a good, safe person for them. So I want to give a little bit of credit. I don't know that that's true, but my right. guess is that that's the case. That somebody gave her the blessing. Do you know which elementary school she attended? I think she was at Lincoln. Lincoln. Okay. I think so. Okay. Tell me more about this. You said that you could tell that she had a secret. You could feel it. What did that feel like? So most people like to talk about themselves, turns out, in this world. You know, that's true. And so... When invited with really careful listening, most people will share parts of themselves. And there was just nothing that she could give me. So it felt like I was reaching mm -hmm. and she was backing away. That was the energy that it often had. And so if I was in pursuit of trying to get to know her, and I wasn't pursuing the hard stuff necessarily, just what do you like to do? And she was really closed off about a lot of that. And now knowing what I know about how she lived... I don't think she got to pursue interests or had hobbies or girlfriends over for sleepovers or that was not part of her world. So it wasn't that she was withholding. She simply didn't have a story to tell. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it felt like pursuit. And then I thought, well, stop that now. Just accept her for where she is and find some other door to walk through creativity, helpfulness. So one of the things I did and my colleagues were surprised in about January, February of the school year. So you can imagine I knew her from September until the winter time. And then Wright Middle School sends ambassadors out to the elementary school, sixth graders who tell their story of being at Wright. And they're recruiters for us. It's like a leadership job. It's very special to nice. be chosen. I nominated her and people were questioning that. The teachers were, and even some of my colleagues, like, how will she do? She's so quiet and not up in front of a group. You know, I said, I'm going to support her to do it because she wants to be useful. And this is something she can talk about. School is okay for her. Things are going fine. And so I wanted her. She didn't get that chance to do that, unfortunately, because things fell apart before that. But it was one example of a door that we could walk through that. And she was super excited about the possibility of being on the team of people who would go out to Leopold, Randall, oh, all these wonderful. other schools. But she, unfortunately, we were as we were prepping is when things went down. So Wow. So things fell apart. Tell me how things begin to unravel. What happened? So her sixth grade teacher in reading came down to me with great distress and a day in the winter. I can't tell you exactly when, but she came down and she said, Erica told me a story about being hurt at home. And we talked about it and I don't know what to do. She's saying that she's being abused by her mom and I didn't even really know at the time that Marie wasn't her mother. All of that was kept very close. There was okay. no sharing of if this was extended family and she was actually taken in. With all the time that I spent with her, she never told me that. So okay. that's very interesting. That right. alone is interesting that she didn't share any of that. But I think part of it is that when you hold a secret so dear, mm -hmm. that is so tender and so terrible and so frightening, if you start talking at all, you know, after that, I think you can't kind of control how things start flowing out. So it's just easier not to say much of anything because you can better control that than you can control what you will start saying if you start talking. Mm -hmm. 
What's well, like I tell kids, it's like holding the hand over the faucet, mm-hmm. and you feel that pressure. Mm-hmm. And if you let it go, it feels like it's going to come out, right? And come out and come out, and exactly. It's, a, it's even scarier to let that go than it is to hold it tight. Exactly. Yeah. So when the teacher came down, I asked her a little bit, and it was a, a deep scratch on her chest that she said had been done by her mother. But the thing that was rattling her the most was there were other scars that she was able to see. And she was very upset. And so I said, well, the next thing we do is we have Erica go see the school nurse so that we can assess the injury and then we'll make a plan from there. But I said, don't go far because I'm going to include you in the next steps about what happens for kids when they're in this tough situation because she chose you. Right. As one of her people to tell something to. And I've been with her for months. And right. she, this is a, an important role you're playing in her life. So Absolutely. stick with me. So she was like, you know, I mean, right. th- I think teachers want to go back and teach. Right. You know, but I was like, just stick with me. Well, and nobody she, wants to deal with stuff like this. Right. So she went to see the nurse and the nurse was also really upset. And I said, well, we'll take it from here. We'll call Dane County Human Services. And our policy is generally that when this happens, we include kids by at least letting them know that it's happening. Right. Because there's such a sense of powerlessness when your life is being driven mm-hmm. by abuse and by systems that aren't responsive. And so I think, I don't remember where Erica stayed after that, like that day, because it was literally the last day I saw her because she never did come back to school ever again after this particular day. So I invited her sixth grade teacher in and I said, we're going to make this call together. And since you were the one that was told, I'm going to teach you because I like to live teachers strong and capable to make this call if they need to, as opposed to relying on us few social workers out there. Right. We practiced a little bit and we told, uh, she got on the phone and she called human services, gave all the address and all the other things that you do, and then told the story about how Erica had shared this scratch on her chest that was fresh. So human services will often ask us, how old is the injury? Human services also tells us though, Please don't investigate the incident any further than you need to. Now you can move into the support role. Right. So. And that's fair. You know, having been a social worker with Dane County, you know, as a lay person, you don't know all the right questions and you might ask a leading question. So that's their job to investigate. 100%. Right. 100%. Right. So. And it also requires the child to tell their story twice, three times, four times. So I was like, you know, as long as she shared that and took that risk, Mm -hmm. a girl in turtlenecks and pants for months and months and months showed a teacher. I can't imagine what that felt like for her to reveal that and then for them to see scars. So we called and Sarah, the teacher, and I shared with her, you know, we're we're making this call because we want you to be safe. We want you to feel protected. And I don't remember her saying anything. Wow. You know, so sometimes kids cry and they want to take it back or or I didn't, it didn't really happen. It was my brother. I had a cat or whatever. So none of that happened. I think she went into a deep kind of frozen, fearful place and we reassured her, you know, we're going to be with you. Thank you for telling us. But Mm -hmm. we were simply supporting her at that point. Right. I don't believe they, the human services was toward not in the beginning of the day, it was later. So human services did not respond at our school. Okay. They had the information. They did accept the report. I mean, mm-hmm. and there are ways to give reports so that they're more likely to be accepted. Right. So that's something that I taught the teacher about where you give the facts and how you okay. say those things. So they did accept the report, which we were grateful for. What is helpful to know? Like if there is a professional out there right now who's working in a school, for instance, who has gotten a report, what are some tips that will help them to know how to say what's been said to them 
to hopefully get some action from county services. Mm-hmm. I think that it's very important when you're reporting abuse to the system to be very dispassionate and to stay in the facts. So on this date, this is what we observed. This is the injury. Here's the context. This is a girl who doesn't share. She's very quiet. She seems like a tin soldier around her parent. Okay. So you're providing the facts. You're providing the context. But you're not saying human services, this is what y'all should do. Right. Because they don't like that. No, they don't. <laughs> right? I mean, right. they want to be in their role. Exactly. And so you stay in your role. Mm-hmm. You provide the facts, you provide the context, and you provide care and concern, and then you step back and you let the people do what they're going to do. I think Mm -hmm. what happens, honestly, is when schools call, they'll say they have no mittens and they haven't had breakfast. You need to take them to a foster home. Mm -hmm. And people are like, "Mm mm-mm. Right. That is not the way the system works. Exactly. And And we don't want the system to work that way. We sure don't. But it's a whole lot of kids will be taken out of their home. But we misunderstand each other. Right. So schools see their babies hurting. And they want human services to do something, like make it better. But human services operates within laws and context that allow them to be effective. And it's like, where's that meeting between what I can offer you and your role so that Mm -hmm. we can help this family together? I'm not going to tell you what to do. You're going to tell me what to do. But we're both in care and concern, going to grab hands and we're going to do right by this family. Right. And, you know, this is an offshoot. I just think a lot of times people think that foster care is the great savior of these Mm -hmm. kids who've been abused. And we've seen and heard way too many stories to understand that foster care in itself is not the answer and that there are oftentimes when situations are more benign, like no mittens and things like that, and there was no breakfast today, that could have just been crazy day overslept type of a situation where support to the parents could be very helpful. But in cases like this, where it's a deeper situation that's going on, we're dealing with something that is mm-hmm. more of a tragic, urgent situation that needs some immediate attention. And I did foster care social work for 10 years before I came to the schools. And no matter how bad it is, the children love their parents and want them to be well. And that's the truth. That's it. That's That's the truth. There's nothing else to talk about. Right. So maybe for safety reasons, we have to protect them for a while. But the Mm -hmm. love that a child gives you is forever. Right. So invest in the family so that they can be well and we can keep them together whenever possible. So I'm with you 100 percent on that. Right. Especially whenever possible. You know, some situations like this is extremely horrific. I don't think there would have been any manner of support, it sounds like, that would have been helpful to keep Erica within that home. So you report is later that day and she goes home after school. Now, with the manner of injuries that Erica showed that were witnessed by the teacher and that was witnessed by the nurse, should she have been allowed to go home that day? (sighs) Um, the injury itself would not have led because it was a scratch on the chest. The scars probably should have told us to do things differently. I read one of the reports said that when her body was found, that she had almost 200 scars on her body at various stages of healing. It just wrung out to me. Now, this was years later. This is about four years later, because now you're saying she's around 11. This is around 15 when she was actually murdered. But just from what you're saying to me and the manner of not just that scar, but the love of scars and the fact, oh, she's scarred and she's been wearing these turtlenecks and these long sleeve and these long pants, no matter what the weather. Wait a minute. This is a critical situation. 
this child doesn't need to go home today. And there was information that she had hurt herself and had gone to the emergency room to get attention. And as soon as they asked her to put on some other clothes, they took off. So there's no justification for it. Yes, I think it's true. Human services should have been there before she left school. They have 24 or 48 hours to do their job, even in an acute situation like this. And so, yeah, I think in hindsight, it probably would have made some sense to hold on to her, to insist Dane County Human Services come and see her and address it before they could take off. See, so ultimately that's what happened. We couldn't have predicted that. And I often wonder who told her, like who told Marie that Human Services was involved? I think it was probably Erica. I don't know that for sure. That is total conjecture on my part, but nobody else knew. We don't call parents and tell them that we've made a call. Right. We're asked not to. Right. Uh, Her sisters didn't know, as far as I know. Right. Unless she told somebody. I I don't know. It just makes me wonder, because the other thing that happens with kids, even though there's fear, there's such a deep sense of unworthiness. Right. That they almost say, hey, I want you to know Mm -hmm. this happened today at school because it'd be worse if I didn't tell. I just often wonder sort of how that went out because they were gone immediately. I don't know what happened, but they left the state. Because from my desk, then what happened after that is they didn't come to school the next day, which is a big red flag that things aren't going well. And to stay in role as a school social worker, I was reaching out to human services. Mm -hmm. Like, what's going on? How's the investigation going? Who's been assigned? You know, we want to know. We're concerned. And they said, we're going out to the house and we're trying to reach them and we're getting a locked door and nobody will answer. And ultimately, they found an empty apartment within just a couple of days. So they were gone. I know it is within 48 hours that investigation needs to be had by the intake social worker. So she doesn't come to school the next day. So something happened in between then. I'm just wondering, how did they get away so fast? I don't know. Without the social workers doing that initial investigation. She tells she doesn't come to school the next day. You're calling the social workers. They're saying... Hey, we haven't been able to find... Had they actually assigned a social worker? I believe so. Okay. Do you remember who that social worker was by Mm -hmm. chance? So you think that they probably assigned someone to do the investigation. So how long after she told us the next day she's gone from school, did you keep kind of calling them up? A few weeks. And I'll tell you, the inspiration for that was my school secretary up front cared about this family a lot. And she would say... If they've left, there's been no request for school records. These children aren't anywhere. So normally within a couple of weeks, so I was calling saying, they're like, well, we got a locked door. Now the apartment is empty. They're nowhere to be found. And so there wasn't a lot of energy with a scratch and a couple of scars. They didn't know what that meant to continue, right? They were like, "Mm, case closed. But then my school secretary kept saying to me, I'm not hearing anything. I'm worried. I'm not hearing anything. I'm worried. So I'd call back and say, hey, is there anything we can do? Do we need to be looking in Illinois where the family is? Mm -hmm. Can we do something there? Well, you know, interstate compacts and the complexity of investigations and all that. So were there any photographs taken at the time Mm -mm. by the nurse? It's not part of our protocol. That would be human services that would do that. And there's certain limits, and I get that. There's certain limits that you have as school personnel. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think in that moment, you all took the steps that were both required by you and motivated by you to want to help Erica. Mm -hmm. From there, it just seems an important ball was dropped Mm -hmm. from county responses because that just has me a little speechless there. And I don't know this for sure either, but I believe that this wasn't the first report. And so if a family is 
AWOL and can't be found. Mm -hmm. How far should a Madison social worker go to find? They included the police, I remember. We've got missing kids and all that kind of stuff. But so we had a couple of different school system, child welfare system and the police understanding that there were missing children somewhere. It got cold. Other than Miss Shipley up front, that right. was her name. The school secretary is like, this isn't okay. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. There's no school records. None of the children, right? So mm-hmm. all of the children were gone. There were no school records for any of them being requested. I mean, I guess what I'll say about this is that, yes, I can have the blessing around being a school social worker and staying in role, right? And mm-hmm. human services did what they could. But there's still a child who never went back to a school again and was kept at home under horrible circumstances. So it's not okay what happened. Right. And we have to live with that. Because she was so connected to school, I had faith. I believed that she would be back. I didn't even take into account that it would be taken over by her mom or whatever it is that they were doing. I was like, I'll see my girl tomorrow. That's what I thought. And I never did. Nobody ever saw her again. She literally, as far as I know, never stepped foot in a school again for how many years before her death. So I'm a decent school social worker. I believe the county had the best intention. But when there's a child who loses their life, we all have to ask ourselves why. That's just what it is. Wow. To the best of your recollection, when is the next time anyone from the family showed back up? I don't know. So the kids didn't come back to write. Mm-hmm. Even the older kids mm-hmm. did not. For a period of time, though, I want to say you'll have to check with the other staff. I think the younger brother came through right. So after disappearing for a while, this is what's so strange about this story. So there was this quick exodus around 2004-ish, and they disappeared for a while, but they re-engaged with Madison, re-enrolled their kids, and then there was a job that was secured by the parent. What went wrong there? Because my understanding is that around 2004, something like that, she worked for the school district as a special education assistant. And I know that there are background checks that are done. So why wasn't there a red flag that this woman had been under investigation for physical abuse of a child? So when they do a background check, they do a criminal background check, which means they're only looking at legal offenses. Child welfare records are protected. And so they would not come through in a professional setting unless it rises to the degree of a legal charge. And I don't know if abuse was investigated. I'm going to presume that they didn't have sufficient evidence. I understand the premise that these records are protected for the kid's sake. Mm -hmm. But I'm just thinking that anybody that's under investigation who's working with kids, Mm -hmm. they need to check their police records. They Mm -hmm. need to check to see if these people have ever been under any kind of Dane County Human Services investigation. And that's our local county. But any county, wherever you are, you know, if you've been investigated, Mm -hmm. not even convicted, But if you have been investigated for any kind of harm to kids, you don't need a damn job working with kids. Yeah, it's a good question. And it's worth exploring. One of the goals is to give a heads up so that those around children are better uh, in terms of how we protect them. I don't know what the laws are around the releasing of investigation or child welfare records because people are accused of abuse falsely. And if that Mm -hmm. affected you getting a job. Because somebody called in and was ratting on you because they were mad at you. And then you couldn't get a job working with, you know, so there's always those balances of community safety. And I don't know where the line is, Lily. I don't don't either, because I know there is a prominent woman right now who has had the investigations around alleged child abuse of her son show up a couple of times. And I'm not really sure how that has legally been gone without being addressed, because if it's supposed to be closed records. I think they open and close them sometimes at whim. If you were talking to a room 
of school social workers. And you were talking about particularly how to protect children who have been abused, what to do if a child reports. What would you share? What type of advice would you give them? I guess I would talk about persistence. Don't let the first question be your last. I think sometimes we move so fast and we think, is everything okay at home? Is enough. It's not. Right. Because they're not going to tell you the first time. They're not going to tell you the second time. If Erica chose me to be in her circle of safe people, I persisted, right? I saw her a lot. I did what I could to create the conditions where she could tell a teacher what was true for her. So that circle of concern and support needs to be steady and compassionate. Our lives are so busy. We ask once, we think that's enough. It's not. So I would talk about compassion. I would talk about persistence. I would talk about the importance of letting kids know that secrets in general, every one of our children should hear that they shouldn't be holding things as little people that are too hard to carry by themselves. So we have some things in schools around protective behaviors, you know, like who are your safe people? Don't keep a secret. You're not alone. I would say we need to continue to do that in all forms. Don't get caught in reading and writing and math to the point where our children aren't learning how to speak for themselves, to advocate, to find some trust. I would tell school people and other professionals, take good care of yourself, too, because our wellness means that we get compromised and jaded a little bit and we stop asking And we start moving too fast or we're judgmental or we write some people off. And that's related to our own stuff, our own stress on the job. It's powerful. Yeah. So you got to slow down and you got to remember our exquisite presence and attention and persistence is what our children need. Right. um, No matter what. I know there was something I saw on Facebook one time some years ago, like in the 50s, some of the biggest concerns were kids talking, chewing gum. These were the top concerns of teachers. We're living in a very different time now. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that abuse is happening more now than it was in the 50s, per se. But we're living in a world where there's so much access to information and talk shows and YouTube and Facebook and all of these things. So I think our kids are in a different place around how they experience these things, how they share about these things. Do you feel like school personnel, particularly the service support service in school, are they really prepared to deal with the level of trauma that we see kids talking about today so that they understand that asking one time, two times, five times what's going on to a child that is exhibiting some signs that something is not right. You're seeing it, you're feeling it with your gut. Even if you don't have the evidence, you know something is wrong. Are we really giving these personnel the type of information, experience, and education that they need to know how to unwind a child who is in the midst of trauma, not just has experienced trauma three years ago, five years ago, and now they're not in that trauma, they're still holding it, but how to really open up children who are in the midst of trauma right now. That question leaves me somewhat hopeful, actually, because the number one request that teachers have and principals have for training right now and for professional development is trauma and mental health for their children. So it has risen to the top as Mm -hmm. a top priority. So the neuroscience of trauma and the brain and 
why kids might be acting differently in their classroom as opposed to willful misconduct. Mm -hmm. They're being naughty and sassy and all that. Teachers are really beginning to understand that they can dig deeper to understand that behavior is just communication. They're just letting us know Mm -hmm. that something's up, that things Mm -hmm. are hard, that they're off the path. They need somebody to reach out to them. So I'm hopeful in that regard because I think that in many states, but Wisconsin in particular, we are really focused on trauma-sensitive education and the mental health needs of kids in schools and recognizing the power of our influence. School staff have a tremendous influence. We're the yes, frontline folks, right? Right. And the children love their teachers, right? right. If it's done well, it's like right. it's like symphony music, right? So I think people are now defining their role as relationships, connection, being curious with kids, asking all that kind of stuff. So I do believe that we're making progress. The villain here is time. Mm -hmm. So I still think that schools, so much is expected of people that they, to stop and rest and provide that safe space to talk is pretty hard to accomplish sometimes. Right. And the other thing that gives me hope is that the young people are ahead of us. So I'm in my 50s and these were things we did not talk about. Right. And the young people are now like, can I tell you what's up with me? I got a little anxiety. Like my life is hard. Or I got some stuff happening at home. My mom's giving me trouble. The children and young people are more willing to take risks and name things than anything I've ever seen before. They definitely have more language than we had. So let me ask you this. When we're talking about trauma-influenced behavior from kids, the acting out, the mouthing off, the fighting and things like this, particularly in our city and state where Madison, we know there is just a huge gap between how white students are doing in school and how black students particularly are doing in school. How do you think race plays into this at all when we're looking at behavior and determining whether or not this is just a quote unquote bad kid or this is a kid who is in need of some help and support? Oh, there's an easy question. Okay, so let me tackle this the best I know how. There's an intersection between risk in neighborhoods and poverty and systemic racism and oppression and implicit bias of teachers. That's where it lives, right? right? So the children who came into the door at Wright, who were 90% children of color, Mm -hmm. came in and we could see them as less than, broken, poor, or we could see them as brilliant and beautiful and clay to mold every day. A lot of adults use sympathy or lower their expectations or think less of our children Mm -hmm. of color because they think that's the right thing to do. It's not the right thing to do. For example, as my teachers at Wright were learning about trauma, they'd say to me, well, that child who happened to be a child of color has been through so much, he's not available for learning. I said, do not tell me that. Right. Because he gets one chance to do sixth grade. You go tell his mama that. Right. No. So the belief that children can grow and learn despite tough circumstances, the circle of support that I talked about, the asking and staying present for kids over time, really important. And the recognition that our children are carrying heavier things to school, but that doesn't mean you want less for them or expect less for them. That's right. And so that's what I would offer is that we have work to do in our white dominated school system around what empowering people and liberating people actually means. Right. And it it is compassion, but it's not making anybody less than. It's not seeing anybody as broken. Right. And I think I'm going to underscore the white dominated school system. And then I'm going to go further to underscore the white women dominated school system. Mm -hmm. When a white teacher sees a white boy or girl who's acting out in some kind of way, They're able to look at that white boy and girl 
and say, and let's just stay with girls because we're talking about defending black girlhood. So let's say, say when a white teacher can see a white girl in her classroom acting out in any kind of way, it's easy for her to look at that white girl and think, oh, my daughter, my niece, the girl who sits by me in church in the pew. But when it's a black girl, that level of connectivity is not there. That immediate ability to empathize is not there. And then you layer in the implicit biases that are there that prevent looking at the same behavior. And I've seen it. I worked in schools for decades and I've seen it. I've seen a white kid do something. I've seen a black kid do the same thing or even less. And the response is over the top to the black kids. Absolutely. And I think that leaves a lot of black girls vulnerable in our school system because we're seeing more and more acting out of black girls. We're seeing more violence among black girls. Black girls are being expelled and suspended from school in high, high numbers. And I think we are missing the opportunity to be that circle of support and that long time commitment to what's going on with this child. And it's more so let me make my day easier. Let me make my class calmer by just kicking her out, by just sending her to the office. I don't have the time to deal with that. And I need to teach two plus two equals four. And you had said something earlier. It's like we can't be so concerned within school systems of teaching the basic essentials that we miss what's going on in life for these kids. The other way that this plays out is if white women who are teachers see a black girl in trouble, there's risk of her telling herself a story about their family. Mm-hmm. Then the reach out doesn't happen. Right. Like I've had people say to me, well, this is probably the only meal that this child is going to get. I'm like, what are you talking about? Right. But they make some conclusions, you know, mm-hmm. so they look at a high dense neighborhood that has some difficulties and they make an assumption that the child is not fed or cared for or that the parent is disconnected. I'm like, wait a minute. There is somebody who loves this child. Right. And, and we may have to think outside the box. So maybe it's grandma or Tia or whoever. Right. But we ask. Because there are people who love this child more than us who can wrap themselves around this young person. But we stop asking, I believe. And I believe that it's based on what we tell ourselves, the Mm -hmm. stories. And those stories disconnect us so that we're not grabbing hands on behalf of our children with families. That's what I believe. I believe that, too. In your own work now, as you've gone forward, how do you move differently based on what happened with Erica? Hmm. What a beautiful question. I think that it comes back to taking my own advice Mm -hmm. (laughs) about compassion and about persistence, about recognizing that kids' lives outside of therapy sessions or schools or whatever kind of work I'm doing is complex, that they have a story that I can attend to. And maybe there's a part of me that wants to step back and not hear it because it's ugly. I mean, we have to be honest about that. There are people Mm -hmm. who want to just step back because it's hard. Right. And so I guess it's continuing to lean in to check my own as a white woman. What are my biases? How am I growing? How am I growing in compassion and persistence and all the things I talked about? Right. I wish I had done more when my school secretary was saying, where is she? Mm -hmm. I think I moved on myself pretty quickly. And so my practice would include me staying in it longer to hear the whole story. So honestly, I have a lot of regrets about this. I mean, this is a painful story for me because it's like a child never stepped back into school on my watch 
even though I'm in somewhat in integrity with what I did, it doesn't mean that I can't grow and right. that I can't continue to evolve as a professional so that right. I can be one of those people who walks alongside until it's resolved. This one was not resolved. We lost a child. And so we walk alongside till it's done, until kids are in a better place, I guess. Well, I have just deeply enjoyed having this conversation with you, hearing your insights, your thoughts, and, and just your honesty about how difficult this is and what could have been done differently. And I think what's important about that is there's nothing more that we can do for Erica at this point. But I think what we do from here after working with her, after knowing her, after hearing her story, even if we just have just heard her story and we've never met this girl, I think we can make a determination from here that will make her life matter mm-hmm. by being better informed as we go forward, by looking when something doesn't look right. It's probably not right. When something doesn't feel right, it probably isn't right. And sticking to it and being, I don't think hypervigilant, but at least vigilant until it's time to get hypervigilant about something. You know, when something doesn't look right, when you're out at the mall and you see something that doesn't look quite right with a kid or you're in church and you see a family and there's something off, like wherever we are, we all have to be committed to every child is our responsibility. Every child that crosses our path in some kind of way is our responsibility if we see something or even just to give a kind word and be in that safe place for them. And I have to honestly say, and this is not to quite honestly absolve you of anything that you should have done or could have done, but I have to honestly say that for those moments in those days that Erica was with you, you gave her something. You gave her a sense of peace. In those moments that she was with you because she kept coming back and coming back. And so you couldn't do everything, but you did that. And I thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming and sharing today. That was a really difficult conversation, you know, I didn't want to say too much and I found myself just really listening and wanting to hear more of what Monica had to say, kind of unfolding parts of the story that I didn't even know. And so I I have to say that I'm left with more questions. And so I want to know what questions are you thinking? You know, what are the questions that come up for you after listening to this conversation with the school social worker, do you feel like there was more that she could have done to get Erica to open up? She talked about this kind of the ways she tried to engage Erica. And, you know, what what are ways that we need for our school support services to engage our Black girls? Because I think that our Black girls often get lost in the process and they often get mislabeled and they're often just seen as you know as just um loud and disrespectful and people aren't really listening to that but now Erica was the opposite she was very very quiet you know and I think sometimes that when black girls are quiet 
white people are really happy about that because it makes them feel more comfortable. I think loud black girls make white people feel uncomfortable. And so, you know, was there more that could have been done to draw Erica out, to ask her more questions based on the concerns that she had as a social worker and the support staff? And, um, you know, what do you think could have been done after it was reported that Erica was being abused? What do you think could have been done more from the school's point of view after this first conversation? What do you feel? And do you feel like, do you feel like Erica should have gone home that day? You know, what are questions that you have? We want really, we're on this journey together. We really, really want to hear from you. So visit our website at lalata.org and submit your questions and comments for this conversation. And as we're going along, you know, we want to hear what you have to say. And various times we will be making some special episodes or in our newsletter, we'll be having special response to some questions that come up and things that happen in the middle of that. So we want you to sign up, subscribe so that you can make sure that you stay up to date with what we're doing. You can do that on the website again later if you don't know how to spell it. It took me a while to learn it. It's L-I-L-A-D-A dot O-R-G. You can go there and you can see there's a section for you to contact us and you can leave questions there. There's a whole nother section for subscribe and on there enter in your information and you'll be one of the first ones to know what we're doing. Thanks for listening.